This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. A wonderful song to sing together, Christ our hope in life and death, and it sets us up here for uh, our new study. So you can have a seat, and I invite you, if you have a Bible, to open to the book of Colossians in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1. If you'd like to use one of the Bibles we provide, you'll find that on page 983. And while you're doing that, let me first say thank you for those of you that prayed for your elders as uh, most of us got away over this past uh, few days. And we also had the uh, four elders in training with us. It was a blessed time of reflection and prayer and, and discussion. So we're very grateful for, for your prayers. I also want to say I want to thank... Um, those who may be in the room right now because you were serving us in first hour for the children's education after last week several stepped forward and so we had enough for covering some Sunday school for the children in first hour thank you very much those of you whether you're here or whether you're uh, listening somewhere or maybe you're in fellowship hall thank you so much for step, stepping forward you know last summer <clears throat> we gave uh, sabbatical breaks to our two other staff pastors to both Chris and, and Scott and this summer, it's going to be my turn. My sabbatical will begin the Monday after Father's Day. Next Sunday is Father's Day. <clears throat> and so I'll be beginning the sabbatical break after that. During my break, the, uh, uh, the brothers are going to be preaching the rest of the way through the book of Colossians. And uh, this morning, my task is simply to set the stage to sort of begin Primarily, you're going to be hearing over those next several weeks from our four elders in training. You're going to be hearing from Pedro Chung, from Matt Houck. You're going to be hearing from Michael Sonelli, and hearing also from Luke Shelnett. And I want to encourage you to love these men, support these men, be praying for these brothers. Um, you know, it's a little stressful sometimes standing up here and all that, but they all love Christ. They love to serve God's people. And then at the very end, uh, uh, Pastor Tom Krugel will, will tie up the ending of the book of Colossians, and then I'll be back. So be supportive of these brothers. Um, today is really just an introduction to the central concepts of, of Colossians, and then verses 1 and 2, the title of our series is the hope of glory, taken from chapter 1, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think all of you know that all of Paul's epistles have a dominant theme, right? And so when you go through the book of Romans, it's justification by faith alone. When you look at the book of Ephesians, the central theme appears to be the mystery of the church, one new humanity, one new body, Gentile and Jew together. And when we come to the book of Colossians, what might be the central theme, I think, is this, is the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ for the believer's every spiritual need. The supremacy, sufficiency of Christ to meet every spiritual need of the Christian. Christ in you. The hope of glory. He is our all in all. Because in Him the fullness of deity dwells. And in Him you, if you're a Christian, have been made complete. That seems to be 
the, the central uh, uh, theme, what Paul is stressing in this letter. Now, why would Paul stress these things? You know, you also know that all of Paul's letters also have a reason for being written. They have an occasion for, for being written. And so we ask ourselves, why would Paul have to stress such a high view of Christ, what is called a high Christology in this book, as he has that great hymn to Christ there in chapter 1 and, and goes on in that way? Why would he have to do that? Well, as best we can understand and New Testament scholars can understand is the church at Colossae, which was a small town, was being troubled. It was being disturbed by some false teaching. <clears throat> now, Paul does not mention any false teachers. He mentions no false teachers by name. He doesn't use the phrase false teaching or false teachers, nor does he describe their errors or analyze their errors in detail per se. However, the many warnings contained in this book make clear that it was written to fortify these young Christians uh, to resist the tug of what was being taught there at Colossae, whomever was teaching it. You have warnings such as, don't be deceived with plausible arguments. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 4, you have the warning of, do not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. In chapter 2, verse 8, in chapter 2, 16, you hear this, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and so forth. So it's, it's clear that, it, that they were being stressed. They were being influenced and Paul's concern for them. He loves them, he's even though he's never met them. And he wants to help fortify them against this false teaching. Now, while we don't have uh, Paul's detailed uh, diagnostic of the exact details of the false teaching, when we look at his prescription, when we look at the medicine that he prescribes, well, that gives us insight into what he's what he's countering. In other words, what he's trying, trying to, to correct. Um, it appears, though scholars have not always agreed upon this, it appears that there was not one primary heresy per se, but that, but that there was a concoction, there was a combination of, of mysticism, elements of mysticism and elements of, of Judaism. And this sort of thing we might call uh, syncretism, a combination of these different things uh, uh, was pressing upon these Christians there at Colossae. It also appears that some of these uh, teachers, whoever they were, uh, claimed to possess the, some superior knowledge, you know, uh, deeper insight, uh, deeper insight into uh, the Christian life and a deeper spirituality. It's not really uh, the same kind of issue as in Galatians and uh, that book that's being covered by Chris in our adult Sunday school. It's not really uh, errors about how to get in. In other words, it's not about justification per se. It's, these seem to be errors about how to grow while you're in and what you need to grow while you're in. In other words, they were errors about the Christian life, about sanctification, not 
justification. And it appears that what they were teaching was that it's, it's great to believe in Christ. You need to believe in Jesus, but you need to, to work your way up to a higher spirituality by adding to your faith in Jesus various things that some of you don't have, some of you have not done, or some of you have not received. You need to add to your faith uh, asceticism. What's that? That is uh, severe self-denial, certain practices of self-denial. It appears to come from some of the legalism from Judaism, you know, special diets, don't eat this, don't touch that, and, and so forth. Uh, they added to Jesus uh, uh, astrology, uh, visions, uh, uh, angels, uh, again, special days. They, he mentions the Sabbath in there as well. I guess you can boil it down to this. What they were saying, if you really want to get in, you really want to be, I mean, a super Christian like me, <laughs> it's, it's Jesus plus the things that I'm doing. You know, Jesus plus the things that I've seen or the things that I've experienced. You, it's Jesus plus something else, right? And so really, you know what it boils down to? It boils down to spiritual intimidation. It boils down to intimidating other people with your claim of having something better than they have, even though they have faith in Christ, <laughs> even though they are justified in Christ through their faith in Him. And you know what? Uh, spiritual intimidation happens all the time. It may not take this sort of false teaching approach or this sort of same combination of mysticism and Judaism, but there are still people today, there are people all over the place who intimidate others by making other people feel that they are special, they have something you don't have, you know. You're missing out. Uh, you have not attained what we have attained, and they make, they, they make other people feel unenlightened, you know, lacking something, uninitiated. And when you are intimidated by others like that, it's easy to feel, if you're not careful, you feel less you feel like you're less. You feel like there's a gap between you and God. And maybe, you know, maybe they're right. You know, maybe it's not enough that I, I have believed in Christ Jesus. Uh, I'm lacking something. Um, that happens still to this day, beloved. Um, and you know what? Before we, 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 we look at it, just what happened in Colossians, Colossae, I can say that this sort of spiritual intimidation could even happen right here in a church like this. It doesn't have to be some big organized, you know, uh, doctrinal movement. Uh, uh, sometimes it's just sheer pride. Pride. Self-righteousness. People who look down on other Christians and make them feel that they are less. Because they're not like you, you know. They, don't, they haven't gotten as far as you have. And Paul says in Romans 12, Let no one, let no man think more highly of himself than he ought. Uh, this comes from the great apostle himself who, who was given a vision, who did, he said, travel to the third heaven. He says, whether it was in body or not, I don't know. But he didn't want to brag about that. And so he says in this epistle, don't take any stand on visions you've seen or anything like that because that's, that's not necessary. Uh, so, yeah, it could happen today. Uh, and, and maybe some of you have actually experienced, you're on the other side, you're on the receiving side of this and you've been around uh, someone, maybe even someone in this church, someone in this fellowship who's made you feel like less than them, uh, 
that's a shame, you know, because we all stand on level ground underneath the cross of Jesus Christ. And our salvation in Christ is uh, equal through the grace and mercy of God. In Christ Jesus, remember, there's no male, female, female uh, uh, rich, poor, slave, Scythian, etc. You are all the same, spiritually speaking, in Christ Jesus. Now, if you've ever felt like that, if you've ever been pressed and felt like there's something lacking, maybe you, maybe you need that second blessing, you know, or third or fourth or whatever it is, or, or this or that, or you need that special, you need, you've never been to that conference, you know, and that's the one. You ever feel like that, then let me say this to you. You know and you understand why Colossians was written. You'll understand why. To keep you, to keep you from chasing something that you either already have or is unnecessary, you see. There is a, an old fable, I haven't told it in a while, but there's an old fable told of a dog who had found a very large bone, and while carrying it home, he stopped and looked into a pond. And there, gazing into the pond, what did he see? He saw the reflection of his own bone. But you know what? The bone in that reflection looked a whole lot bigger than the one in his mouth. <laughs> and so as the fable goes, he, he dropped the bone and snapped at the bone in the reflection. And you know what happened to the bone he already had? It fell into the pond, you know, and he lost it. You know what? That's the danger of falling prey to spiritual intimidation. You begin to chase after Something that is just a mere murky reflection of what you truly are and possess in Christ Jesus already. Now, unlike the bone, you can't lose Christ, <laughs> but you can spin your wheels, you know, for a long time. You can spend a lot of energy trying to get there, trying to get that, trying to experience that, trying to have that other thing, whatever it is that other people have. Listen, beloved, you understand why this book then was written, if you ever felt like that. Uh, the high Christology of this letter, chapter 1's filled with it, right? That great hymn of Christ. The high Christology of this letter seems to have that one main goal, and that is to demonstrate to the Colossians and to you and me, to demonstrate the sufficiency of Christ for the believer's every spiritual need. And it, it makes clear, uh, it makes clear the, the glory of Christ because they were devaluing it. And it makes clear every Christian's genuine identity, true identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know? And so the letter presents this, these truths about Christ from every, from every different kind of angle. He is the object of the believer's faith. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator of all dominions. He is the head of the new creation, which is the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the unifier and reconciler of all things. He is the savior through his sufferings on the cross. The treasury of all wisdom and knowledge dwell in him. He is the triumphant victor over Satan through the cross. He is the exalted Lord of life and glory seated in the heavenlies. And he is the true pattern 
for the Christian's life. All those things, beloved, and more, you see. And so Paul will get into that, and our, and our brothers will be expounding these sorts of things. And so uh, with this as a background then this morning, let's look at these first two verses, and I'm going to stress that you see how Paul immediately begins to lean. Already, even in just the greeting, he leans into the whole concept of their identity in Christ. So let's hear these first two verses. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We're going to look at the apostles' identity and then we'll look at the Colossians' identity or the believers' identity, that's us as well, and then we'll look at the greeting the apostles' identity. He begins, Paul. Paul. You say, well, that's obvious. That's his name. Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to point out that the apostle first identifies himself by the name that is specifically connected with his ministry and calling to the Gentiles. You know that the majority of his life, his Hebrew name is what? Saul. And he was called Saul. That's his Hebrew name. But he uses his Greek or Roman name, Paulus, Paulus, which literally means the little one, <laughs> the little one. And this is his name, Paul, associated with his calling to the Gentiles. Remember that in Paul's conversion, uh, he was uh, appointed to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, after that dramatic conversion of Paul, uh, the Lord Jesus spoke to Ananias. He had to convince him to go. It's safe. Go talk to this man. In chapter 9, 15, he says, the Lord said to him, that's to Ananias, go, go talk to him, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. The Gentiles. And kings and the children of Israel. But he was the apostle primarily to the Gentiles. So he uses his Roman or Gentile name, Paulus, the little one. And I can't help but wonder... If in God's, uh, you know, his, in his divine sovereignty, this man's name, the little one, really reflects Paul's own thoughts of himself in, when he thinks about how God saved him and how he became an apostle of the Lord Jesus. I don't know. Just, I, this I'm reading between the lines here, of course, but I get the idea that he was fond of his Roman name, his Greek name, Paulus, the, the little one. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, 1 15, 9 and 10. He says, I am the least of the apostles. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And what was he? Paulus, the little one, saved by grace and made an apostle of the Lord. And that's the second thing. He says he is an apostle, an apostle. The term apostle is a transliteration in a shortened form of the Greek apostolos. Apostolos means a sent one. That's simply what it means, someone who is sent but it, ca it came to be used and refer to people who were sent 
to officially represent someone of great importance or someone of authority, someone who was commissioned to represent another as a representative. I think a more common English word we maybe would use would be ambassador, that Paul as an apostle was an ambassador, an official representative, and of who, he says, of Christ Jesus, Christ Messiah, of Messiah Jesus, Christ the anointed one, the chosen one of God, the eternal son who was promised and came uh, to be incarnate. And how did Paul become this uh, ambassador? How did the little one become an official representative of the Christ, God's own Messiah? Well, we saw it in the book of Acts, didn't we? We saw in the book of Acts, chapter 9, it certainly was absolutely, had nothing at all to do with any level of spiritual achievement on Paul's part. It had nothing to do with anything meritorious he did. This guy was a mess. He was going the other way. He was persecuting Christians. How is it that this man called Saul, who persecuted Christian, becomes Paulus, the little one, ambassador for the Messiah? I'll tell you how it came about. It was the pure grace and love and mercy of God. That's it. <laughs> that was it, the grace of God. Paul says here, by the will of God. God determined this. God decided this. God confounds the proud. God confuses the world, you know. He takes someone who is opposed to him and turns him into maybe the greatest missionary that, uh, that we've ever seen on this globe. Huh? That's all because of the grace of God. In that book that, uh, that uh, Brother Chris has been teaching, Galatians, Paul refers to that grace at work in his life and the fact that he's apostle because of Christ's uh, because of the will of God, he began the letter, Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then in verse tw 12 down below, he talks about the gospel he was given. He says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm an apostle not because of any committee. I'm an apostle, not because somebody decided I was, but I'm an apostle, not because I earned or did anything. I'm an apostle because of Jesus Christ, because of the authority of God the Father. I receive what I have through His grace. And then he mentions grace directly in verse 15. He says, when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him. Set apart before he was born to be an apostle. <laughs> Even when he was running around persecuting Christians. Set apart and then called by the grace of God and given the gospel and appointed to be an apostle, a preacher of the gospel. You know what? If you are a Christian today, you're in this room and you have faith in Jesus Christ, you were saved in the very same way. Maybe not appointed to be an apostle. Yeah, I understand that. Not in the capital A sense. But you, were told in the scripture, were set apart before you were born. For he has chosen you before the foundation of the world. You were set apart before you were born. And because of his grace, he called you. 
He opened your eyes and gave you faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something you need to reflect upon, beloved, and recognize. That's glorious. And so Paul says, I became an apostle by the will of God. And when he does this, he is in essence, I think, establishing a level of authority with the Colossians. From what we know, Paul had never been there, but he needs to address errors. From what we know, a man named Epaphras, or Epaphras, came to Ephesus when Paul was preaching there, was converted by Paul's ministry, and evidently went back home to Colossae and preached the gospel, and lo and behold, there's a group of people there now. (laughs) There's a church, and there were problems, and so word was brought to Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome, as we mentioned last week, that first imprisonment, from what we understand, during that time, word was brought to Paul about what was going on in Colossae, and several letters were written. And so what he does is he establishes the authority. When he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in essence, he's saying, when you hear me speak in this letter, what you're hearing is no one less than the Son of God. No one less than the Christ, the Messiah, is speaking to you. And so that reminds us of the authority of the apostles' writings. When you read the Bible, no one less than Christ Jesus is speaking to you through his words, the words of the apostle. And so Paul establishes that authority. He never met this church, and I think he wanted to be clear about who it was that was speaking. Perhaps Epaphras had told him about Paul, you know. And so here's Paul introducing himself. But then he includes Timothy, He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. You know, in a few other letters, Paul includes Timothy and Timothy, he says. And we say, well, in what sense was Timothy also writing? I don't think we are to imagine that they are co-writing. This is not a co-authorship. You know, don't picture Paul and Timothy sitting around going, what do you think? Should I use the word mercy here or grace? And Timothy going, nah, I'd go for mercy, man. And I don't think we're supposed to imagine that. Uh, and I think what's happening here is that Timothy is his what's called amanuensis. He's his, he is his secretary. He's writing while Paul is telling him what to write. And especially this letter, it's clear because at the very last verse of chapter 4 of this letter, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Uh, then he says, remember my chains. Grace be with you. He's in prison. He says, Timothy's been writing for me, but here at the conclusion, here I am writing, you know, with my own hand, the very ending of this. So he includes Timothy. But we should say something more about this. Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. I want to say this to you, that Paul recognized the vital place uh, his ministry partners played in his life and in his ministry. So many times in this letter, Philippians, right? Uh, My beloved brother, he says. uh, So many times in his letters, he mentions co-workers of his ministry partners. He mentions them by name. He talks about their sacrifice. He talks about their hard work. He exhorts the churches to receive them, to respect them. Paul understood what we call team ministry. 
And Paul appreciated those who ministered with him, and he promoted their gifts. He promoted their ministries. He gave them tasks to do and encouraged the churches to respect them. And that's exactly what I'm grateful for here at this church and the plurality of elders and those who are coming up. And I'm encouraging you as well to support these brothers this summer. Their ministry and their love for you is invaluable. It's just, it's essential. <clears throat> and they have been here several years, many years, all of them serving the Lord. So be praying for them. And so that's the apostle's identity. Paul, Paulus, the little one, an apostle by the grace of God, along with Timothy, his beloved co-worker, to the Colossians. <clears throat> now look, look what he says. To the saints and faithful brothers, in Christ at Colossae. And here we see Paul immediately leaning into their identity. Well, he's never met these people, but he wants them to understand. He knows, and he understands they received the gospel. So what are they? They're saints. They are saints, first of all. Saints here is the plural of hagios. That term refers to being consecrated, set apart, sanctified the holy ones he's talking about. He's not referring to those who have, uh, have advanced in some level of personal piety, you know, personal holiness. That's not what he is talking about. He addresses them as he addresses every believer who's been justified by faith alone in Christ because all people, all people, men and women, young and old, who have been justified by grace through faith have also been consecrated, set apart, sanctified. They are saints. They are holy ones in the eyes of God. And so saints here speaks to their status, not to some degree of personal achievement, you know, uh, not to some degree of personal holiness or righteousness that they have achieved. They're saints because they've been set apart by God, for God, that's it. By God, for God, through Christ Jesus. And so Paul, that's how Paul normally uses this word. A saint in the Bible does not refer to a special select group of Christians who uh, under some ecclesiastical authority have been deemed to have, you know, done something, lived enough, uh, ho holy enough in their lives or experienced some sort of miracle so that they can now be called saints. Every Christian in this book, the New Testament, is, praise God, a saint. A saint in Christ Jesus. And so he refers to them, people he's never met. As saints. In fact, he'll refer, use the word again, verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, that's their status. Now, I know, I know, because personally, my own, my own uh, religious upbringing, uh, I, I, I'm uncomfortable referring to myself as a saint. You know, I've never introduced myself as, hi, I'm, I'm St. Tony, you know. <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> It just feels odd, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound? It does, but that's because of all these things associated with sainthood, right? But guess what? I am St. Tony, okay? And guess what? You are saint whoever you are if you are in Christ, and you give thanks to God for that, okay? You are saints, he says. And then he says, you are saints. I want to go to the phrase, in Christ. I want to go in this order. He says, in Christ. In other words, that's why you're a saint. He's referring here to every 
believers spiritual union with Christ. Because you are united to him spiritually, mystically, it's not something you see, but because you've been united to him by God's grace, you are now a saint because he is holy and therefore his holiness is embracing you. You are in that status of belonging to him. More than 90 times in the New Testament, Paul uh, it, uh, makes some reference to Christians being either in Christ or Christ being in them, some association with Christ. Scholars say that's more than a little more than 90 times Paul refers to that. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17, for example, he says anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Well, you could add into what? You can add is a saint. He is a brother or sister. He is uh, adopted. He or she is sanctified. He or she, uh, you could just add it on, you see, because Christ is our all in all, and in him we are complete. We possess what belongs to him. That's why it's a central thing here in the book of Colossians. In him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him, you are complete or full. Scholars think that this word full or fullness was sort of like this little, you know, trigger word among them as far as the whole insight that they had. Oh, yes, good, you believe in Jesus, but have you come to the fullness of the, you know, that you could have in Christ, the fullness, and so forth. So Paul plays with the words, he puts it right back to them, and said, you know what, in Christ the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made full or complete because of your association with him. Now, so saints in Christ but now I want to point out something interesting, and that is the order in which the sentence is written in the Greek New Testament. Because what Paul literally writes is to the in Colossae saints. And when you move something up in a sentence in the original language, you're trying to bring some emphasis to it. The way New Testament Greek works, you can put the words almost in any order because it's the ending of the words that tell you whether it's the noun or an adjective or the verb and so forth. So when you move something up in the front, front half of the sentence, you're trying to make some emphasis. I don't want to make too much of an emphasis here, but Paul does make some emphasis here when he writes to them as the in Colossae saints. In other words, I think this is what we, we should get out of this. They are identified spiritually in relation to Christ, right? Their position in Christ. But it's worthwhile to Paul to emphasize that they are identified also in relation to their geographical location. They are the at Colossae saints. It's a reminder that the gospel is moving everywhere in the ancient world, and there were even saints in the Podoc town of Colossae, okay? But it's also a reminder of, t of the fact that, that believers live in these two spheres. We live in two spheres. We live somewhere, the in Colossae, and we live in Christ. Now, you may live somewhere for a short period of time or move from here to there, but wherever you live and whenever you live, you are always in Christ, you see. The place where they lived wasn't very significant, but the Christians there 
were significant, you see. They were saints in Colossae, or the in Colossae saints. Uh, I want to quote J. Hampton Keithley. He makes a good point about this, and I'd like to apply something here. He says, a Christian always moves in two spheres. He is in a certain place in this world, but he's also in Christ. He lives in two dimensions. He lives in this world whose duties he does not treat lightly, but above and beyond that, he lives in Christ. In this world, he or she may move from place to place, but wherever he or she is, he or she is in Christ, you see. He goes on. I continue to quote him. He says, that is why outward circumstances make little difference to the Christian. I pause, and I say, maybe we should say, ought to make little difference <laughs> to the Christian. I know we all feel it sometimes, right? But he says, that's why outward circumstances make little difference to the Christian. Why? Because his or her peace and his or her joy are not dependent on them. That is why he will do any job with all his heart. It may be menial, unpleasant, painful. It may be far less distinguished than he or she might expect to have. Its rewards may be small and its praise non-existent. Nevertheless, the Christian will do it diligently, uncomplainingly, and cheerfully. Why? For he or she is in Christ and does all things as to the Lord, you see. We are all in our own Colossae, he concludes, but we are all in Christ. And here's the point. And it's Christ who sets the tone of our living. In other words, it's not the where that should set the tone for your living and your outlook on life. It's the whom, whom are, to whom do you belong, and whom are you in? You are in Christ Jesus. That's very important. I think it's very important right now. I want to stress this, but this is fleshed out in chapter 317. The brothers will get there. He says, whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Even in Colossae, Colossae was a small town. It really was a meaningless town at that time. Uh, it was a nowhere town. It was near Laodicea and so forth. But listen, uh, there where it was in the Lycus Valley, very soon after Paul wrote this, the road, the main road that went through Colossae, which was already a small town, bypassed Colossae altogether. And they became Radiator Springs, you know, <laughs> like in the movie like in the movie Cars, you know. The highway bypassed them, and they would be really nothing on the map. But you know what? The where they lived was not the important thing, but the whom they belonged to, right? They were Christ. I meet too many Christians today for whom the where has become too important and can say such things as, I can't live for Jesus here. It's too difficult to live for Jesus here. Really? Try Ukraine, huh? Try North Korea. Try Afghanistan. Try Pakistan. Try India. Try China, you see. It's not the where, beloved. It's the in whom, right? And to whom you belong. There's, you know, there's 
we've already said it here many times because of what's happened in the last few years. There are many reasonable reasons to change your position in life or status, where you live, and so forth. I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying that. That remains. But to say, to say that the place keeps you from honoring Christ? <laughs> no, no, no. Whatever you do, wherever you are, whenever you are, do it all to the glory of Christ. Even in Radiator Springs, huh? Even here. So it's very important, right? And then he concludes by referring to them as faithful brothers. Faithful brothers. Um, faithful is a plural adjective of the word pistos, which can, which can mean either believing or faithful. It could be translated believing or faithful. Most translators, most Greek scholars take it here as faithful. So he was emphasizing something not just about their status there, but about how they had been behaving, that they were faithful brothers. And when he uses the word brothers, the plural of Adelphoi, in their time, that plural, Adelphoi, uh, included the, the, the sisters. It was a way of referring to the family, the brethren is what he's talking about here. And the emphasis, I think, to them is what he's saying to them is that they are not alone in this struggle. They are not alone in this journey. They are the in Colossae saints in Christ, and they are part of a family. Uh, you are part of the brethren, of the brothers and sisters by way of adoption. You know what? I got to think that would have meant something to them when Epaphras or Tychicus came back with the letter, depending who carried it back, and they read it. And here's somebody uh, whom Paul has never met. They've heard of the great apostle, and he refers to them as the, the brethren, that you are part of this great family um, by way of adoption. And then comes having emphasized their identity, which, by the way, is your identity, apart from the Colossae part, right? You are the in wherever you are, uh, saints uh, in Christ, the faithful brethren, part of this family. He then extends his greeting. We read it there. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. You know, we read that in so many of Paul's uh, greetings that we could just skim right over it, but just think about that. Grace and peace to you from God, the Almighty, who's now our Father in Christ Jesus. You think about that for a moment. Grace and peace, a combination every one of us need. Grace. What is grace? Grace we have defined before as God's divine favor which he extends Willingly, which he extends not only to undeserving people. That's not saying enough. God's, it's his favor which he extends to the ill-deserving people. It's not like we're neutral. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. How does Paul describe it? Before that grace reached you, before the grace reached you that then brought you peace, 
This is what you were, Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. How did you live? Verse 3, you, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Uh, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What happened? But God. Yes, <laughs> but God. I can look back and say, that's exactly where I was. I, I would say, Paul, you're being too kind to me there in those first few verses. I was worse than that, you know. But God, but God, what do you do? God being rich, the word means overflowing, super abundant in what? Mercy. Remember, what's mercy? God giving us what we need, not what we deserve. Be overflowing with mercy. What did he do? Well, before he tells us why, he says, because of the great love with which he loved us. Because of his great love, even while we were children of wrath, because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with him, with Christ Jesus. He united us to Jesus. We were born again. We were in Christ. And then he just sums it up this way. Hey, he says, by grace you have been saved. Isn't that a great phrase? Amen? By grace you have been saved. Saved. There's the great equalizer. Why would you look down on any other Christian? Why were you saved? You something special by grace and a little tidbit. I was saved, you know. Really? By grace and my prayer life, I was saved. Really? Really? No. By grace. Pure love and mercy from God the Father, the Creator, who loved you before the foundation of this world and set you apart, sent his son into the world, what did he do? He took upon himself the very wrath and condemnation that you deserve. He suffered it fully to the end. He drank it down to the bottom of the dregs. He was buried, uh, and he was raised three days later as the affirmation of, of the work being completed. It is finished, he cried on the cross, you see. It's by grace that you have been chosen. You've received divine election, a calling, a new birth, justification, sanctification, Adoption And what does this lead to? Peace. Because grace reached you and you responded by faith, you were then at peace with God. Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That peace, that peace that Paul is talking about there in Romans 5.1 is what we may call a peace, objective peace. It is a peace of status. It's not what I'm feeling. It's, it's, it's the reality of my position. I, having been justified by grace through faith, I am now at peace with the living creator of the universe, the holy God, the judge of the world. And he's at peace with me. And you know what? You can't do anything to ever change that. You may, you may still sin. You are a saint who's capable of sinning, you may sin and you may receive the Father's discipline in your life, but you are forever at peace with God, you see, because of Christ. So the question then is this, why does Paul say grace and peace <laughs> be with you, you know, be given to you from God our Father to people who he thinks are Christians, they're saints who have already received grace and are at peace with God? Because he is not talking about the grace that brings us in initially, that leads to the new birth, nor is he talking about the peace of that status, but he's talking about the grace we need to keep receiving every day 
to experience the subjective peace of assurance that all is well. They're being troubled. They're being told, that's great, you have faith in Jesus, but have you received X, Y, Z, like me? And so Paul's saying, I want you to receive the grace and the peace of God. Be assured. Be assured in your soul that uh, you are well. Everything's well. Everything's okay in Christ Jesus. And so that peace, that kind of peace, you know, it, that, it, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? You know, we continue to grow in grace. Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we grow in this grace. And as we grow in this grace and knowledge, we experience more of the subject of peace, right? That Paul mentions in Philippians 4. And they needed that peace. They were troubled. Sometimes you know you need that peace too. And the Lord ministers it to us through the gospel and through the supper, which we'll take in a few minutes. And so, beloved, here at the end, he says that this grace and peace comes from God, the living God, who is now our Father. Think about how complete you are. You know what? Some people, this is true, some people, this is a shame, some people who profess faith in Christ spend the better part of their Christian lives waiting for some sort of validation. Validation from someone important to them or something, some group, waiting for something more to happen, waiting for some experience, waiting for something more to receive, waiting for some stamp of approval. Listen, beloved, Colossians was written for people like that, maybe for people like you, to point out this. In Christ, you are complete. There's nothing more to seek. There's nothing more to desire. There's nothing more that you need to be right with God. Nothing more you need to Christ, you know, than to grow than Christ. The only validation that you need is from the God of the universe. And that validation comes through the gospel. And the gospel says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the only validation you need. Now, do you need to grow? Yes. He will talk about it in Colossians. You know, you're like a tree that's been firmly planted. Now grow as you've received Christ's Lord. Keep growing, walking. Chapter 3, put off the old man and put on the new person. And Yes, but what I'm saying is you have all you need to grow and become more like Christ. He is sufficient, right? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray.